there is uh, something almost instinctive about kids and running. And it's true for all of us that when we were kids, there was, there was a reason. We, we even looked for and tried to make up reasons to run. In fact, we, we have a little girl that we watch uh, sometimes during the week, and uh, she loves to run. And she'll even look at my three kids and be like, chase me. She just wants a reason to run. She wants to get other people involved in running. And so when we were kids, we all wanted to run somewhere. And for some of us, we wanted to run to something. For some of us, for other reasons, we wanted to run away from things. For some of us, we, we, uh, we couldn't wait till our parents came home. We were passionate about our parents, and so we just wanted to run to them. For some of us, we were passionate about the playground. And so as soon as the door was open and we were told, hey, you can go to the playground, we didn't just walk to the playground, man. We took off running to the playground. So some of us were, were passionate enough that we ran to things. Some of us were passionate enough we ran away from things, like they, whoever was it. It didn't matter what the game was. We were passionate enough to get away from it. That We were going to run away from it. And so we ran to get away from things that, that maybe were it or maybe that were dangerous to us. So then at some point, we, we began to slow down. And for some of us, we slowed down because people told us that normal people don't run. For some of us, we, we slowed down because we, uh, we were told that you can only run in certain places and in certain times, that there are certain places that running is not allowed, that it's not acceptable to run in this place or in this time, that you're not allowed to run here or run there. And, and so there was times that, that maybe we just lost our passion and our excitement, that playground that was so big and so massive when we were kids, now we can just walk right past it. And we're not passionate about it. It's not exciting for us any longer. Our parents, uh, we're going to have them around for a long time, and so we don't have to run to them. Those things that we thought were dangerous and bad, suddenly we thought we either we can beat them another way or they're not as bad and dangerous as we thought they were. And so we don't have to run away from them anymore. And so for some of us, we didn't just stop running. For some of us, we took it a step further that we just stopped. We didn't just stop running and started walking. We just stopped moving altogether and we just sat down. And for some of us sitting here this morning, for some of us watching online, I'm not necessarily talking about your physical life. I'm talking about your spiritual life. That, that some of you remember the time when you first became a Christian and you were so excited about it. Man, you were so passionate in your spiritual life that, that you ran everywhere. You just couldn't wait till Wednesday you got here and you could run to Awana and you could memorize those verses. And you just, you just couldn't wait to open your Bible and get into Bible study. And for some of you, you just couldn't wait. Sunday couldn't come quick enough for you to, to get into church and be part of church and, and worship with people. Man, you just, you just wanted to run here every day and every opportunity. For some of you, you were so passionate. You just had to run to tell everybody you knew about Christ and what Christ had done for you and the difference he'd made in your life. And, and for some of us, we started running away from stuff because there were things in our past that we didn't want to do again. There were things in our past that we wanted to get far away from. There were, there were temptations and sins that we didn't want anything to be close to. And so we took off running as far as we could from those. But then at some point in our Christian walk, we slowed down. And for some of us, we slowed down because we were running around in all of these different places. And then we found out that a whole lot of people that were supposed to be just as excited as we were, they lost passion as well, and they were walking. And so we suddenly found out that we weren't surrounded by other runners. We were surrounded by other people who were walking. And so we started walking too. And then for some of us, again, we took that other step. We didn't just slow down. We stopped. 
and we just stood still. And for some of us, instead of running into church on Sunday morning, we just stroll in here casually and we sit back in these chairs and we just got this comfortable, non-disruptive life and we just sit. And for some of us, we've lost the passion that it faded, and we've lost this passion for spiritual adventure and spiritual activity. And see, the writer of Hebrews, he saw this same thing happening in the community of believers that he was writing to. We've been going through the book of Hebrews. We've made it to chapter 12. By the way, there's only 13 chapters. So in about two months, we're going to be done with this thing, okay? We're going to be finished with the book of Hebrews after a while. But today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, the first four verses. And the message that he's going to give them is, listen, I know things are hard for you, but don't give up. Keep running. Run this race. And this morning, I want you to hear his words of encouragement, his words of strategy, and not just for the community that he's writing to, but for some of us that are sitting in this room, for some of us that are watching online, this is the message of our time. When things are hard, when things are difficult, don't stop running this race. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and read with me. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, like I said, we're going to read through verse 1 through 4. And probably one of the most familiar passages in the whole book of, of, of Hebrews uh, starts in really chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 12, verse 1, uh, and then verse 2. So let's read together. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down on the right hand of of God's throne. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. And finally, verse 4, In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you for a passion that once lived deep inside of us. And God, for many of us, it is still this passion that burns within us. God, for some of us, our passion has faded a little bit. And God, for some of us, we have slowed down a little bit. And this morning, God, I am praying God, that you reignite that passion within us. God, that we will see the responsibilities we have to be part of this community, to grow in faith, to be part of this community. God, that is running this race together, Father. And so, God, I pray this morning that that we have lifted you up and we have exalted you. And God, I pray that we continue to do that. God, through hearing your word and God, through continuing to, to hear what it is that you have for us this morning. And so, God, I pray that as we work through this text, and God, it's a short text, but God, it is so crucial, not to this moment, but to the rest of our lives. God, I pray that we are ready to hear your words this morning, God. God, I pray that we are ready to hear with open ears and, God, an open heart. And God, I pray that we are ready for our feet to move us in a place that maybe we didn't expect them to be moved, Father. God, maybe it's time that we get ready to run this race God, with passion and excitement like some of us used to. Maybe, God, for some of us, maybe for the very first time. But, God, I pray in these few moments we have together, God, I pray that you speak. God, I pray that we listen. God, I pray that we bask in your presence. And, God, that we leave this place. God, we leave here ready to go for you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Some of you are, are sports fans, and I, I love sports. I, I like to watch the Summer Olympics. And uh, throughout the, the history of the Summer Olympics, the top three most popular sports that people watch, number one is gymnastics. Most people watch either gymnastics either on TV or in person. It draws the biggest crowd from anybody or any other sports. The second one uh, is swimming, that folks love swimming. Right? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I remember watching gymnastics when I was a kid. And, and I don't remember watching swimming until I got a little older and this guy named Michael Phelps started showing up winning all these gold medals. And then people came passionate about swimming, right? But the third most popular sport in all the Summer Olympics is track and field, right? Now, I remember some heroes of track and field when I was a kid. So I remember that being popular. Now, that doesn't sound all that significant, but you got to remember that, that the Olympics have tons of sports. They've got everything from basketball. They've got soccer. They've got badminton. And I don't know who watches badminton, but you can watch it. It is actually an Olympics where they got ping pong. Like, they've got all of these sports. And some of you would rather watch anything except the track and field events, but apparently people love to watch it because it is the third most popular sporting event in the Olympics. And so I've got to be honest with you, I, there are times when I like to watch the track and field events, and there's other times that I'm not, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, I'm not too crazy about watching the, the long distance runners, right? Unless you've got somebody who's going to trip and fall or have a wreck or like a good commentator that's going to make some fun jokes along the way, it kind of gets boring to watch one person just run for like 5, 10, some of them like 30 minutes worth, right? That's just not exciting to me. But one of the exciting races to me to watch are the relay races. There's only a couple of them. And, and some of you may be familiar that, that there's, there's the regular races and there's the hurdle races where they have to jump over stuff. And then there's these relay races. And for me, these are the exciting thing because in a relay race, it's not just me versus the other people. It's me on a team of three other people versus the other teams. Right? So the way the relay race works is that if I'm the first runner, then I start this race at the start line, and I hold this baton in my hand, right? And then I'm going to run a certain distance. I'm either going to run 100 meters, or I'm going to run 400 meters. I'm either going to run a straightaway of the track, or I'm going to run the whole track, right? And then when I run that distance, there's going to be somebody waiting at the starting line for me to hand this baton off to. And then I'm going to hand this baton off to them, and then they're going to take off running, right? They're going to run the same distance, and they're going to hand it off to the third person. Then they're going to hand it off to the fourth person. And the race doesn't end until that fourth person crosses the finish line, right? So it really doesn't matter how fast the first person runs if the last person doesn't cross the finish line. So I want you to think for just a moment about watching this race. And now I've kind of explained to you, because some of you may know there's some rules that go along with the relay race. One of the rules is that the handoff that happens from the baton can only happen in a certain location. They have this thing called the exchange zone, right? And if you've ever seen track and field, there's these little arrows that point inwards and outwards. And so those are the exchange zones that the runner who has the baton, he can't get rid of the baton before it's his time. And the guy who's receiving it, he can't get it before it's his time, and he can't get it after his time. That handoff, that exchange, has to happen within a certain distance, within that exchange zone, right? So now that you kind of know that, and by the way, if you, if you hand it off too early or you step out of that exchange zone, it doesn't matter if you're winning or losing, you are automatically disqualified. If you had to hand off before or you hand off after, 
you are automatically out of the race, right? So I want you to imagine this for just a moment. I want you to imagine that you're watching this. This race is getting ready to start, and that first runner, he's getting ready, and the, the gun goes off, and he takes off, and he is sprinting as fast as he can, right? Because the good news is you only have to go so far, and then you get to quit running, right? That's the beauty of the relay race. Like, you don't have to run the whole mile. You just have to run a fourth of it. So you get to run a whole lot faster than the whole mile would be by yourself. And so he takes off. Let's see this first runner, man, he's passionate. He's going, and he starts to build a little bit of lead on the rest of the teams. And then he approaches the, the exchange zone. He hands off that baton. The second runner, he takes off, and he's passionate. He's giving it all I got. He builds a little bit more on that lead. And let's say we get to the third runner. The third runner is there, man, and he's ready to go. He gets that baton, and he takes off, and he is, he is outpacing everybody in the field. So let's say now that this third runner on your team now has a little bit of a lead. Like, he, he's got a little bit of stretch. And now he's coming around the curve, and he's getting ready on this final straightaway, and he's approaching the exchange zone with one expectation. The expectation is that when I get to this exchange zone, somebody, my teammate, is going to be in that exchange zone who's going to be just as passionate about this race as I am, and he's going to take this baton, and he's going to finish this race for me. Now, I want you to imagine what would happen if this third runner is completing his third his lap and he's on this straightaway, and all of a sudden they start to look around and the fourth guy is not in the exchange zone. What do you think the coach would do if he looks around and the fourth runner isn't standing in the exchange zone? He's not standing in that spot. He's not in the position. He's not even on the field. Let's say that he, or he's not even on the Let's say he's sitting over here on the sidelines and he's just been watching this race the whole time. Kind of like a NASCAR race. They all just turn left. And he just keeps watching, and he's watching, and he's watching. And he never steps into the exchange zone because he's just excited about all the race that's going on around him. What do you think the coach of that team is going to do? Do you think he's going to let him sit on the sidelines and just keep watching this race? Not if he's a good coach, he's not. All right? He's going to start yelling at this guy, dude, it's your turn. Get in the exchange zone. You've got to be there. If you're not there, then it's not going to work because he knows that the passion of those first three guys is totally dependent on the passion of this fourth guy. That it doesn't matter how passionate those first three guys, it didn't matter how far of a lead they were in ahead, it didn't matter any of that stuff. If this fourth guy isn't where he's supposed to be and he doesn't take the baton like he's supposed to, they're not going to win that race. And so the, he has, the coach has this idea that the whole race doesn't depend on one person, it depends on the whole team to finish it. And it depends on the passion of each one of them giving everything they've got for this race to be finished. And I share that story with you because when I read Hebrews chapter 12 and I read verse 1, that's exactly what I picture in my mind is this is the coach. The writer of Hebrews is, is the coach. And in Hebrews chapter 1, he's looking not at, at these people that we imagine run this race. He's honestly looking at the people he's writing to. And he's looking at you and I through the Holy Spirit and you guys that are online. He's looking at us and guess what he's telling us? It's your turn. Get ready. Get in the exchange zone. It is time for you to take the baton. It is time for you to get ready to do this. And so he tells them in verse 1, and he tells us in verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witness surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run 
with endurance the race that lies before us. You see, sometimes when we, when we picture this verse, we kind of picture earth being the track, and we kind of picture heaven being the stands and the stadium that surrounds the track, and we kind of picture all of these witnesses that have come before us. We, we picture the Abraham and the Moses and the Joshua and all those people that he told us about in chapter 11. We picture them, and, and many of us will put our own loved ones in that cloud of, of witnesses, and we kind of picture them looking from heaven, kind of, kind of in this cloud, out of, of the stadium, kind of looking down and watching us as we run, all right? Now, i got to tell you, that's a very comforting thought, but that's really not the focus of this verse. The focus of this verse is not the people in the stands watching you. It's really connecting this verse to what we've already read, because what it's telling us is we do have this cloud of witnesses, but it's not them watching us. It's about the fact that we have watched them. You see, if you notice, he spent all of chapter 11, and some of you were with us when we walked through chapter 11. He spent all of chapter 11, he really went through the vast majority of the Old Testament. And you know why? Because he was showing you this is how to run. This is an example of how this guy lived out faith. This is an example of what this lady's faith looked like and what this lady's faith did. And so the challenge is not so much for them looking on us and observing us. It's really for us to see them, for us to observe them. And so they are the witnesses, not in that they are witnessing us, but that we were to witness them. We were to observe their run. And so what he's telling us is, listen, that they've done their job. They've done their relay. Right? They finished their distance, and now they're waiting for you to step into the exchange zone because they're ready to hand this baton off to somebody else. And if you're thinking, hey, there's no way I could do that, what he's done is he spent a whole chapter in chapter 11 showing you that, yes, you can, because there were all these ordinary people that God used in extraordinary ways, and he did it, and he did it for them. He can do it for you. And so you can do it because you've seen these other people do it. You have these other examples of this is what it looks like to live by faith. You have all these other examples of this. This is what it means to, to carry on and to press on. And this is what it looks like to carry the baton of faith, to run the race of faith. They ran their distance, and now it's our turn. And so the challenge right off the bat for all of us sitting in this room and for all of us watching online is to get into the exchange zone. It is our turn to carry the baton of faith. He's written a whole chapter about the generations that came before us, and now he says, let us run the race. Let us be the one that the next generation writes about. Let us be the one that the next generation looks to and be like, that's what it looks like to live by faith. Let us have marriages that, other, that the generation behind us says, that's what it looks like to have a Christian spouse and to have a Christian marriage. Let us live in a way and have such a testimony that people are so passionate and they see our passion. They can't help but to be the ones that follow after us. And so he's telling us, get in the exchange zone. Get ready because the baton is coming. I've given you all these examples. You've seen how it works. Now it's your turn to let us run this race. And so he's telling you to be so filled with passion that we can't walk and we definitely can't sit down and wait for somebody else to come along and do our job for us. It is our turn. This is our moment. Guess what? The exchange zone is very small in comparison to the race. And the race is not just a lifetime. The race is all of history. And we have a certain window that we get to shine in. And it's our turn to step into this exchange zone. It's our turn to get ready and receive this baton to let us run. And I want to dive a little deeper in this first verse because he tells us that if we're going to do this, if we're going to run this race, there's two things that we need to do. Two things that are going to make this a little bit easier for us. 
the first thing we need to do is shed the weight, right? Now, that sounds very obvious, especially when you, when you kind of picture an Olympic runner, right? Because even if you don't watch Olympics, even if you don't watch races, you know that sumo wrestlers don't run sprints, right? They also don't run marathons, and they definitely don't run hurdles, okay? I just don't know. I've never seen it happen. Maybe it does, but I've, I've just never seen it. If you've ever seen somebody who's an Olympic athlete or maybe just a, not even an Olympic athlete, but just a runner, man, you know that these folks are lean. They slim down. In fact, uh, Olympic runners try to balance out their diet and their training so that on race day, men want their body fat to be less than 8%. Women want their body fat to be less than 12%, right? They shed weight and they get down to what they call their, their running weight or their fighting weight for so many people and so for some people it's obvious the weight that we need to shed but sometimes there's smaller weights that we need to get rid of and we need to get out of our life as well there's a guy named bill Bowerman, uh, sorry, uh, Bill Bowerman, he was a track and field coach for the University of Oregon for 24 years. I want you to get these stats. 24 years he was the head track and field coach. Of 24 years, he had 23 winning seasons, which means only one season out of 24 was not a winning season. Ten of those seasons, his team went undefeated. I don't know of any other coach in any sport that can brag about a 10-year undefeated uh, time in his career. Over his career, get this, he coached and trained 31 Olympic athletes, 51 All-Americans, 12 American record holders, 22 NCAA champions, and 16 sub-four-minute milers. Right? In case you don't know what that means, that means they ran a mile in less than four minutes. Right? He coached 16 of them. They are very rare. Even to this day, they are, they are very rare. Uh, and so there's lots of folks that try to figure out what made him such a, a popular and amazing coach. What is it that allowed him to, to compete and his, uh, his athletes to compete at this level? And so there are some folks that will tell you, well, he, he just inspired folks. Man, he could, he could light a passion in you to make you run and stretch beyond your limits. And there's some folks that will tell you, no, that wasn't the secret. The secret was that when he found an athlete that he thought was the elite athlete, when he found an athlete that he thought was, had the potential to be the record holder, to be the next Olympic champion, that he spent special time hand-making shoes and custom-making running shoes just for that athlete. He did it for every single one of those records that I told you. And so the coach, uh, Bowerman, he was obsessed with shaving weight off of these athletes' shoes. And so he, he made these shoes and he believed he could cut down blisters and he could reduce the weight that each one of them had to carry during the race. And I saw uh, in a movie, and I don't remember which movie it was, that there was a guy who, who walked up to him, one of his young athletes, and, and he, the coach knew he had this potential, and so he was making his shoes for him. And the young athlete looked at him and said, no, that's okay. I've, I've got running shoes. I've got shoes that I like. I'm comfortable in these shoes. These are good shoes. And coach looked at him and said, 110 pounds. And the young athlete looked at him like, coach, what are you talking about? 110 pounds? I, and we're talking about shoes here. And he said, 110 pounds, how good do you think you are that you can outrun 110 pounds? And the young athlete looked at him and he said, Coach, what are you talking about? And Coach looked at him and he said, those shoes you're wearing, they're good. He said, but those shoes you're wearing and those shoes that you claim are so great weigh two ounces more than the shoes that I can make for you. And the young athlete looked at him and said, well, it's two ounces, Coach. He said, yeah, it's two ounces. He said, but in the course of a mile, you will lift your foot about 880 times in the course of a mile. 
And he said, if you take that 880 times, multiply it by the two ounces you're going to pick, the extra two ounces you're going to pick up every single time you pick up your foot, in the course of a mile, you're going to pick up over 110 extra pounds. You see, sometimes it's not the obvious things that we need to lay aside. Sometimes it's the smaller things in our life that we think are good, but they're not the best. You see, if we dive in a little deeper to verse 1, if we dive in just a little bit more, I want you to look back with me in verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surround us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Now, I want you to notice, he didn't just save the big weights. He didn't just save the obvious weights. He says every weight. And so when we read this verse, we're often tempted to jump over this idea of weights, and we get to the sins, because the sins are the obvious things. The sins, obviously, the disobedience, the, the, the blatant rebellion against God, those are obvious things that get in our way of running a race with God and running into faith. And so sins are the obvious things that we need to lay aside. Sins are, are obvious things that ensnare us and tangles. And and there's not a single one of us in this room that doesn't need to get rid of those things. There's not a single one of us in this room who who doesn't have a temptation, doesn't have a sin in their life that we need to to not get rid of. So all of us need to to get rid of something. There's some sin that will entangle us, that will snare us, that will slow you down. But we tend to look at those things and be like, yeah, I need to get rid of that. I need to lay that aside. And we skipped over the fact that he said, lay aside every weight. You see, there's things in your life that are good, they're just not the best. There's things in our life that, that are good, and honestly, they're essentially good, and, and, but sometimes they become weights that hold us back. For example, friends. Some of us have friends, and friends are great. Everybody should have friends. We should have close friends, and friends are great. We should all have friends. Friends are not bad. They're not a sin to have friends, but sometimes your friends cause you to be complacent. Sometimes you are trying to run and you realize that to stay with your friend, you've got to slow down and walk. And suddenly your friend who is good, and it's all right to have that friend, is causing you to walk instead of run. And sometimes your friend is the one who's causing you to sit down instead of being in the race in the first place. And sometimes we get comfortable with friends instead of running this race. And so we allow something that's good to take the place of something that is great. And so for some of us, it's friends. For some of us, it's a hobby or an event that you participate in. For some of us, it's a place you go. And those things are good. Those those are great things. It's good to, to enjoy God's creation. It's good to walk through life and have hobbies that are productive and constructive. It's good to have ways to entertain yourself, but it's bad when those things take the place of the race that you're supposed to be running. So what he tells us in this passage, don't just look at the sins in your life. Look at the good things in your life that are being a hindrance to you. Throw those things off to the side as well. It doesn't mean they're bad. It just means they're not the best. You see, if you spend more time with your friends, that it takes over your time with God, then you need to lay aside some friends. If you're spending more time with hobbies and events and in places than you are in spending time with God, then you need to lay those things aside. You see, for some of us, we're just like that young athlete with that favorite pair of shoes. They're good. They're just not the best. They're good, and they're okay, and we need to trade those things in for what is best. We need to lay aside the good and take a hold of what is best because the race that is in front of us is the best, and we want to lay aside everything that's going to hold us back, whether it's good or it's bad. Lay everything to the side, and we shed the weight 
of the good. We take hold of what is best. It allows us to do what the second thing that the writer of Hebrew tells us to do in verse 1, and that's to stay on course or to stay the course. He tells us if we're going to run this race, we've got to shed the weight and we've got to stay the course. I read another story about a runner, and I've been reading tons of, of running stories, and some of them are quite humorous. This one I found kind of fun because I think I, think I may possibly have found a world record that I can compete for when it comes to running, all right? And so I'll tell you the story that in 1912, uh, the, the Olympics had just kind of started uh, taking on marathons. The first marathon for the Olympics was in 1890-something. So the marathon in the Olympics was kind of new, um, and Japan in 1912 had trained their first marathon runner. And so uh, the, the Olympics that year were Stockholm, Sweden, and so Japan has sent two runners, right? Could you imagine a nation just sending two runners to the Olympics today. Could you imagine if America only sent two runners? They sent one sprinter and one marathon runner, right? And the marathon runner, he was a 20-year-old. He was young. He was energetic. And so the whole nation of Japan was putting all their hopes and dreams that they were going to not just have a runner in the Olympics, but they were going to have a chance to win the Olympics in the, 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 um, uh, in the marathon event. And so they were so excited about this young man. that He was so passionate. He was so energetic. He was the one that was going to give them not just the, a medal, but the gold medal to win the marathon in the Olympics. And so, as you can imagine, in 1912, travel was a little different. And so it took him 18 days to travel from Japan to Stockholm, Sweden. And, and he had this one kind of fatal flaw about his running strategy. You see, this young man thought that it was harmful to drink water either right before or during the race. Right? He, he thought that it was a weight that would slow him down. And he thought that it kind of showed weakness if you had to drink water either right before or during the race. Now, that strategy works if you're training and running your races in Japan where it's a little cooler, right? But when you get to Stockholm, Sweden, and it becomes an unusual heat wave wrapping through in the middle of summer, and race day is 90 degrees, it may not be the best strategy to take off and not put on water during that time. Now, to be fair to him, that was a common myth for most runners, or not most runners, a lot of runners up into the 1950s. They didn't drink right before, and a lot of them didn't drink uh, during the runs because they just thought it was bad for them or they, they, it would slow them down. And so in, in 1912, this guy starts this race, and there's about 68, I think, runners who start this race, and, and it is grueling. It's 90 degrees. He hasn't trained in 90 degrees heat. Many of these other runners hadn't trained in 90 degree heat. And it was such a hard run that half of them, 34 of them, dropped out and didn't finish. In fact, it was so hard that one of them actually died while he was running the race. And it's the only death that's ever been recorded in the Olympic marathon event. Right? It happened in 1912. You can look that up. Right? And so he, this guy was one of those that didn't finish. And the reason he didn't finish was because as he was running, he, he kind of got distracted. And what distracted him most was that people along the route were having parties because they, they wanted to see the Olympics. They wanted to see these runners go by. And so he had been running, and he got really thirsty and got really dehydrated. And all of a sudden, he came to this, this party off to the side, and he saw people from a distance drinking orange juice. And on his mind was one thing. Man, I'd really love to have some orange juice. I'd really love to have some orange juice. So as everybody else kept running, you can imagine 26 miles. Now they're down to 34 runners. They're kind of spread out 
All of a sudden, this guy, instead of keeping on the road, he jumps the fence and goes and joins the party and drinks orange juice with these people who, who realize that he's in kind of dehydration state. He's in this kind of not very healthy state. And so they give him orange juice. They give him water. They give him whatever he needs, thinking that at any point he's going to jump back over the fence and finish the race. But he didn't. Instead, what he did was he jumped back over the fence and got on a train and took the train back to Stockholm, Sweden, instead of going the rest of the way. And so when he did that, he was so ashamed and he felt so, so uh, ashamed of himself. And he felt like he let everybody down, felt like he let his country down, that, that he wasn't going back. He didn't go back to the stadium. He didn't register that he had finished the race or he didn't register that he didn't finish the race. He got on another train and left the country and went back to Japan. And so for the people in Sweden, they know he started the race, but at some point along the way, they lost him. And so for 50 years, he was registered as a missing person in Stockholm, Sweden. For 50 years, they didn't know where he was at, and they honestly thought, they really did think that he had died along the way, and they just couldn't find his body on the course because it had already happened. And so they thought, well, we'll just put him down as a missing person until we find him. So 50 years later, they, they had, he, in fact, he actually competed in two other Olympics after that. So 50 years later, they're getting ready to, to, to restart the Olympics, and this news crew from Sweden tracks him down, goes to his door, and said, Hey, we would like to do a story about you and how hard that was and how you overcame all that stuff, and now you're running this thing. And we know you're retired. You're 75 years old now. And, and so we, but we'd like, to, we'd like to do this interview with you. In fact, we don't want to do it here. We want to do it in Sweden. In fact, we want you to come back, and we want you to finish the race. And so now, almost 50 or more than 50 years later, on March 20th of 1967, at the age of 75, he completed the 1912 Olympic course. Get this, his final time, 54 years, 246 days, 5 hours, 32 minutes, and 20.3 seconds. I think I can set a record for the world's slowest marathon. And he actually is in the Guinness World Book of Record for that. He holds the time for the world's slowest marathon. And as he finished, there's a picture of him wearing this big, huge overcoat uh, standing at the finish line. And he told the media, he said, wow, this was a really long trip. Along the way, I ran in two other marathons or two other Olympic games. I got married. I became a geography teacher. I had six kids and ten grandkids. This was a really long marathon. You see, he didn't make, he may not have made the Guinness World Book of Records uh, if he'd have stayed on track, but man, his attention or his, tra- his distance would have been a whole lot less. You see, we go back to verse 1, and what it tells us in verse 1 is to lay aside the weight But he goes on, he finishes at the end of verse 1, and he says to let us run with endurance, the race that lies before us. And literally the reading of that says, let us run the race that's laid out for us, that that God has laid out, he's plotted this course for us, and we need to stay on track with that. And it follows up with uh, with Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, a verse that we looked at several, about a year ago now. It says, a man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord determines his step. You see, our job is to follow the path faithfully that God has laid out for us. And it is to run with endurance. And this word endurance here is a strong word. It means steadfastness. It means consistency. I love the way that one author describes it. He says, this is a characteristic of a man who is unchanged 
from his deliberate purposes and his loyalty to the faith, even in the greatest trials and suffering. You see, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who thought they were going to be have this great Christian life. They thought everything was going to be easy once they gave their life to Christ, and suddenly it wasn't so easy. Suddenly their family started to turn their back on them. Suddenly they found themselves surrounded by people who were walking or people who were sitting instead of people who were running. And he says, don't give up. Stay true to the course, even though the course is difficult, even though all these people are turning their backs on you, even though they're taking your business, they're taking your land, they're taking your livelihood, and they're persecuting you. Don't give up. Run the race that God has put out for you. Stay on the course. This is your job. Run with endurance. And it's this difficult journey, but stay on the course, the course that God has laid out for you, the course that God has plotted for you. Don't give up. And so don't only run, but stay on the course. And he say, if you're going to stay on the course, he says the easiest way to do that is what he follows up with in verses 2 through 4. Is The easiest way to do that is to turn to Jesus, to make him the focus of everything. He says in verse 2, I love it, he starts, it says, keeping your eyes on Jesus. Stay the course. Keep your eyes on him. And so to keep your eyes on him means that you take your eyes off of everything else. To keep your eyes focused on him means you don't get distracted by anything else to the right or to the left. It means that when you're running that marathon and it's hard and you're dehydrated, you don't start looking at the parties that are going on on the side of you. You don't start looking at the orange juice and be like, man, I really would like some orange juice right now. Yeah, it might get you in the Guinness World Book a record for stopping for some orange juice, but you're not going to finish the race, and you're not going to get the credit for it if you don't keep your eyes on Jesus. So he literally tells them to keep their eyes on Jesus and stop looking at everything else. Don't get distracted. Keep focused straight ahead. And then he describes Jesus in two ways in the, that second verse. He says, keeping your eyes on Jesus. Get this, the source and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. You see, what he gives them here is the gospel in a nutshell, that all the other people that he mentioned in chapter 11, all those people that he had mentioned in the, the chapter before this, they all fall between those two things. They all fall between the source and the perfecting of their faith. In fact, if you go back and read chapter 11, it tells you, in fact, in the very end of chapter 11, it tells you that they all died without receiving the promise. They all had the same source of faith. They just didn't see the perfection of our faith. You see, the source of our faith is Christ. The source of our faith, the one who created it all, is the one who started it all. The one who gave them life and gave us life is the source of our faith. And so they had the same source. They just didn't live long enough to see the perfection of that. And the perfection isn't meaning that it's perfect. It means that it's complete. It's satisfied. And so they all come after the source but before the perfection. And so they're looking forward to perfection, the completion of their faith. And their completion comes with what he tells you in that verse. The completion of faith comes with the one who despised the cross or despised the shame, took on the cross, despised the shame, and his resurrection. The completion of our faith rests in the one who has finished the race completely. And so for you guys that have been with us, in this book of Hebrews, you've heard this idea of him sitting down at the right hand. In fact, this is the fifth time that he's mentioned it, that he, Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father or sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we talked about this before in Scripture. If Scripture mentions something one, you should pay attention to it. If Scripture mentions it twice, you should really pay attention. If it mentions it five times, he's doing it for a reason. Right? Get this. The resurrection of Christ is as essential as the cross of Christ in our faith. Why? 
Because it is what completes our faith. How do we put our faith in a priest who has to keep doing the same sacrifices over and over and over? And so the first four mentions of this sitting down at the right hand was because the work of the priest of Jesus is done. The sacrifice that he did on the cross, it is sufficient. You don't have to keep going back to the altar. You don't have to keep going back looking for another source of forgiveness. It is finished at the cross, and it's evident by the resurrection. Both of those in comparison is the perfection of our faith. How do you trust a priest that has to keep going to confession himself? How do you trust a priest that has to keep sacrificing for his own sins? Get this. How do you trust a priest who tells you he can get you to God without being in the presence of God? And so he tells you to the one who died on the cross, but also despised the shame, also sits at the right hand of Father. So how do we trust him? Because he's already where we want to be. He's already the perfection, the completion. He is in the presence of God. And the promise is that if we'll trust the cross, we'll trust the resurrection, then he will put us there as well. Not the right hand, but in the presence of God. And so all of these people in chapter 11, they all died waiting for this perfection. They all died waiting for this resurrection to happen, waiting to know for sure that he is the one who sits in the presence of the Father and sits at his right hand. And so the final thing that he tells us is know the source, but finally serve the example. You see, we see the source, and then we serve this example. And so we look back in chapter 11, and we're not going to look back there, but in chapter 11, there's all these examples. He starts with Abraham, or he starts actually with Abel, and he starts then with, with all of these other examples, and he goes almost through the whole Old Testament telling you these examples, these great people that lived up to faith. And then he gets to the real focus. You see, the real focus of chapter 11 is not chapter 11. It is chapter 12. Because all those examples are waiting for the perfection of Christ. They're waiting for the true example of what it ultimately looks like to live by faith. They're waiting for the epitome of faith himself. And so the epitome of faith is not Joshua. It's not Moses. It's not even Abraham. It's all of none of those because they cannot do what Jesus did. In verse 3, it tells us, For consider him, think about him, think about this for a moment, who endured such hostilities from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. He says, I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus went to a cross and died to forgive the very people who were putting the nails through his wrist. Jesus went to the cross, despised the shame, died on a cross to forgive the very people who stood at the foot of the cross and mocked him and insulted him. He hung on that cross to forgive the very people who spit on him as he hung there dying for them. And you know what his prayer was? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So you want to hold on to faith? Look at the example of Jesus. You want to hold on to faith? Look at all that he endured, knowing that his endurance was for us, not for himself. That he went to the cross knowing that thousands of years later there was going to be this name, Michael Rakes, a guy named Michael Rakes, who was going to be in desperate need of salvation. And he knew all that I was going to do, all the sins that I was going to commit. And yet he went to the cross anyway, knowing that it was for me that drew those nails and nailed him to the cross. That it was you that needed forgiveness. And so he took the cross, despised the shame, and did it all for us. 
You see, consider him. And so when you think about giving up, look at the one who didn't give up. When you think about losing heart and you think about losing your passion, look at the insult that you gave him and what he gave you in return. When you think about giving up, when you think about growing weary and losing heart, when you think about turning your back and you think about running or slowing down and walking or maybe just sitting in a comfortable seat on Sunday morning, when you think about look at the cross and see what he endured for you and the grace he gave you. And then finally, verse 4, in struggling against sin, you know, those things you were supposed to lay aside and, and, and the struggles that we were going to lay aside, you, you've resisted. But look what he says in verse 4. You have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You see, Jesus is the completion because he's the only one that completely resisted sin all the way to the cross. He never gave in and he never gave up. If he did, he wouldn't be a savior. If he did, he'd be like every other priest that had to sacrifice for his sins first and then for the sins of everybody else, but he doesn't. And so if you're looking for somebody to model your life after, if you're looking for somebody who gave everything and showed you what faith looks like, don't give it to somebody who fell short. Don't give it to somebody who got to a point and then they couldn't resist the temptation anymore. Give it to somebody who resisted it all the way to the point of shedding his blood. And so we see the source, and then we serve the example, and we serve him by running after him. We serve him, not Moses, not Abraham, not anybody else in the Hall of Fame. We serve him because he suffered for you. We serve him because it's our turn to take up the baton. We serve him because it's our turn for the shedding of weight. We serve him because it is our turn to stay the course. We serve him because it's our turn to run the race. Let me share one last story with you. We started off talking about the relay race. And in America, for a long time, we have prided ourselves on winning all of these gold medals. In the past four Summer Olympic Series, we were the favorites to win the 4 by 100 meter relay race. So four people running 100 meters each, one lap, four different people doing that, all right? We were the favorite to win. The reason we were the favorite to win that event in the past three sets of Olympics is because we had the four fastest individuals in those spots. Can I share with you a sad statistic? You know how many gold medals we won in the 4 by 100 relay in the past three Olympics? Zero. In fact, you know how many medals we have won in the 4 by 100 relay in the past three Olympics? Zero. And it wasn't because we didn't have the fastest runners. You know what the problem was? We didn't hand the baton off the right way. We missed the handoff. And in those little missteps, in dropping it one time, and having to bend down and pick it up, we were in first place, then we had to bend down and pick it up. We went from first place in the finals to fourth place and didn't even medal. You know why? Because somebody wasn't ready to take on the baton and run their part of the race. I share that with you as a church, looking at you guys here in these seats and you guys that are online, because I don't want to be known as the church that wasn't ready to take on the baton. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be known as the person who didn't run with passion and grab the baton with passion when it was my turn. I don't want to be the one who was in first place and all of a sudden we fumbled the handoff and now we're not in first place anymore. You see, I'm afraid, not Cornerstone, but I'm afraid the Olympic team in America is the picture of the church in America. That we've had generations that have ran the race before us, and now it is our turn. The question is, are we going to take the baton, or are we going to drop it and let somebody else try to outrun us? Let's pray together.